Well, turn with you, please, to Psalm 127. Today we're going to be looking at a few different texts. If you're new to Sovereign Grace, you will know that you will not know that most of the time we we preach expositionally through books, and that's why, as a local church, we're actually going through John at the moment, and have been in John since last March, and we're only halfway through. We like to take books and we like to examine the books, but there are occasions when we need to study the Bible topically so we can understand what does the Bible say about an issue throughout its entirety. And so I'm going to pray as we continue this series, Sanctifying the Ordinary, and then let's get to this together. To be honest, it is going to take us a while to get to Psalm 127, so just be aware of that. As I start talking, you think, has he forgotten? No, I haven't forgotten. But let's pray. Well, Lord, we... We genuinely do want to have crazy love for you. We don't want our lives to settle for the status quo. Lord, if our lives aren't radically different from the community around us, in light of eternity, there is something radically wrong. And so, Lord, as we come then, even to the areas of ordinary detail, oh, Lord, would you have your way in our lives? Would you fan into flame your truth that we may capture, even in the mundane, just how extraordinary you are, how incredible you are in every way, and how involved you are with each detail of our lives. Father God, help me by your grace today, and help us all as you communicate to us from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. When we started this series last August, we started it for six weeks and we are in it once again for another six weeks. There are really two aims, two hopes, two purposes that I set aside to gather us around these topics of sanctifying the ordinary. The first hope is that we would be equipped to glorify God in all of our lives. That in each and every detail of our lives, we would be able to exhibit and know from the Lord what crazy love really looks like, even in the ordinary matters of life. You see, glorifying God in all of life, I submit to you, is the only appropriate response to the magnificent of God, is it not? When you see God for who he is, how can we not then respond by seeking to glorify God in all of our lives? Glorifying God then in all of life should be the desire of, I believe, every genuine Christian. And glorifying God then accordingly, which should be no surprise to us, is what it talks about in the New Testament as a response to the calling of Jesus Christ's life on our life. See, as we start the book of Ephesians, chapters 1, 2, and 3, is all about how God has saved us. It's all about incredible call of the Christian. How Jesus Christ came after us even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. How before there was even time, God chose us for an adoption. At the right time, Jesus Christ pursued us. And then through amazing grace and through the gift of faith, which is indeed a gift, he saved us, adopted us into the family of God, forgave us, redeemed us, secured us with the Holy Spirit depositing as a guarantee our inheritance and ensuring that heaven would be our home. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 is all about that, the call of the Christian. But Ephesians 4 through 6 is then all about the call on the Christian. And so in Ephesians 4, verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received. Sovereign grace, in light of the calling that you have received, in light that all that Jesus Christ has done for you, in light that your story of salvation is a complete and utter work of his defining grace, oh, I I urge you then, walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received. And Paul then continues that to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, he says, So whether you eat or drink, note, two very ordinary matters, are they not? Whether you eat or drink, or in fact, in fact, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. God is interested in each and area of our lives. Not only the major decisions we make, he's interested in eating and drinking as well. He's interested in the mundane. And you see, my life, apart from serving my wife, which is my greatest joy, And being a dad to my children, which is my second greatest joy, my life after that is given quite genuinely 
to lay my life down to serve you. It is. Albeit imperfectly, albeit sinfully on occasions. That's my efforts. My efforts are that. And you need to know that my, my job, the calling of God on my life, is to equip you this day to live this day in light of that day. The greatest joy of my job will occur, I think, when you stand before the Saviour. Because I want you in that moment to hear well done. And so I'm giving myself this day to equipping you even in the mundane of life so that on that day when the Saviour's gaze falls on you, his words may be to you, well done. Because you've grasped Scripture and you've applied it in your life. And he has given you grace to do so and equipped you to do so and you have responded to him with obedience towards him. And so this course is designed, number one, to equip you to glorify God in all of our lives, to help us see even in the mundane that God is involved. Secondarily, it's also, it was my hope in designing this course, that we would be equipped to discern the gracious presence and provision of God in all of our lives. That we would see in each and area of our lives, God is involved, providing for us and presencing himself with us. Just recently I heard about an article in Sports Illustrated magazine in which a writer, a young man, was talking about his old coach. His coach had died around 10 years ago and shortly after that his coach was the name by William J. Bowman, a man I had personally never heard of prior to this moment. But this young man was talking about Mr. Bowman and giving him a tribute in Sports Illustrated magazine and Listen to what he says. He says, Bowman revolutionized the training of distance runners at the University of Oregon between 1949 and 1972, jump-starting the jogging and fitness movement of the 70s and with his former miler, Phil Knight, co-founded Nike, famously designing shoe soles on his wife's Barbara's waffle iron. Daddy got in, I should think he got into trouble for that. And then watching bemused as the company rode his boom to society, altering power. Here's the line then that caught my attention. Having surveyed Mr. Bowman's life, he concludes by saying simply this. He says, Bowman seemed to awaken each morning with new eyes. Whatever he did in his life, he, he woke up each morning with new eyes. My friends, it's my hope and prayer that through this series we would, as Sovereign Grace Church, awaken even to the ordinary of our lives with new eyes. New eyes to perceive what is so often hidden in the mundane. New eyes to see what is so often obscured in the ordinary. New eyes to perceive the gracious presence and provision of God in all of life that we may awaken each day and see. I love the illustration Mark used last week of, of if Adam actually rocked on up. And he would say, my gosh, what is that light? And a cup, what is that cup? It was an illustration of how people see with new eyes. They take ordinary things and realize, my gosh, that is magnificent. That is an evidence of God's grace. That is an evidence of his presence. That is an evidence of his provision. I pray that we would, through this series, see ordinary things like that. One man who I've come across by the name of Jean Vif wrote the following in the book Spirituality and the Cross. Mr. Vif, I would submit to you, does indeed have new eyes. This is what he says. He says, We encounter God not only when we serve and work, but when we receive his gifts through others. Being loved by a spouse or a parent or a friend is, in a real sense, being loved by God. Benefiting from the vocation of others Eating a meal in a restaurant, getting your car fixed, going to the doctor, slowing down at the sight of a police officer, buying something well-crafted, listen, are all occasions for thanking God. For me, enjoying a work of art, whether listening to music, reading a novel, or gaping at a painting, is an especially pure example of God's sovereignty and human vocation that I am able to take such unmerited pleasure through the God-given talents of other people 
who have a vocation that I by no means have myself, always fills me with a sense of praise. Not just to the artist, he says in closing. Not just to the artist, but to the God who is so wildly generous in all of his gifts. My friends, we serve a wildly generous God. A God who is wildly generous in all of his gifts. And so it is my hope then that through this series we may be equipped to glorify that wildly generous God in all of our lives. And it is my hope through this series that we'd be able to perceive his presence and his provision for us, his wild, generous presence and provision, even through the ordinary, even through the mundane. My prayer is that we would indeed have new eyes. And so as we continue this series today, aided by some work that I've been able to get hold of from C.J. Mahaney, which I'm very grateful for, I would like to address us this morning on the topic of sleep. There is something very ordinary and mundane about sleep. But there's something also very incredible about sleep. Now, I would assume that given the numbers here, although there are plenty of you here, I would assume that you are probably unlikely to have heard a complete sermon before on sleep. I don't think anybody I've encountered this week informing them that I was speaking on sleep has said, oh, my, I've heard it before. You know, it's not a common topic that, that preachers choose to speak on. Now, I'm aware that there are many people who here that will have been fallen to sleep during a message. I'm aware that during a sermon, you will have participated in sleep, in the gift of sleep. And I'm aware that, to be honest, as a pastor, I have made my contribution to those numbers over the years of causing people to go to sleep. I remember at Christchurch many years ago, um, I hadn't long been a preacher, and I was about 10 minutes in. And, and here's the thing, here's a little secret about preaching. You think because there's loads of you and one of me that you just see me and I don't see you. I see every face in the room. I, there's different times I encounter each and every one. I know whether you are awake or not. And, and Christchurch, a number of years ago, I remember right at the back, it was, it was, it was a big church, so it was, it was a way back, but I, I spotted this bad boy. I, I spotted that there was an elderly gentleman that had either had a heart attack and died or was asleep. And I noticed by the fact that the snoring seemed to be taking place, he was in fact asleep. So I'm aware that I have contributed over many years um, to adding to the gift of sleep during sermons for people. But I've never given a message on sleep. And I doubt you've ever heard a message on sleep. And yet the truth is, the Bible refers to and addresses sleep quite a lot. And that really, when you think about it, shouldn't surprise us. Because God is sovereign. God made us. He provides all good things for us. And so it shouldn't surprise us then that he addresses us in the topic of sleep. Not least because when you think about it, we do do a lot of sleeping. I mean, I I was thinking about it seriously this week. We spend nearly a third of our lives asleep. That's a long time. I mean, it was a startling fact this week that that I thought about actually in bed. Emma, Emma has the gift of sleep, like as in speed of sleep. You know, and, and maybe some of you have that gift of sleep where you put your head on the pillow and within 10 seconds you're asleep. I forgive you if that's you. I mean, it, 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 some people just have that gift where you just turn off. And, and as Emma fell asleep with that speed, I sat up in bed and realized we've been married nearly 13 years. And I have spent four years in this bed. Four years of my life have been asleep. And then I realized this year I'm going to be 38, 37 at the moment. And I realized, okay, well, 37. I've spent 12 years of my life asleep. 12 long years in my bed, fast asleep. And I have no idea what the Bible says about sleep. I spent a third of my life and yet I have no idea... Why God has done this, how we're meant to work through this biblically, how we're meant to sort through sleep scripturally. So today, I want to inform you that scripture does indeed address those 12 years of sleep in my life. It addresses all the sleep in your life. And for the remaining years in my bed, and for your remaining years in your bed, I want us to be able to look at sleep scripturally. Because if our sleep isn't different from an unbeliever in the way we approach it, there's something not right. Because the Bible communicates to us about what sleep is. 
and the way it works and why it works a particular way. So three points this morning. They're not complicated points. We'll look at a different text for each. Here's the first. Number one, sleep is a daily gift from God. Sleep is a daily, a daily gift from God. Psalm 127, please. Told you we'd get there. Verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Listen. For he gives to his beloved sleep. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Sleep, my friends, is a daily gift from God. Verse 2a, I think, is an accurate description of the northern suburbs of Sydney, don't you think? There are many people all around us in this area who rise up early and go to bed late, and many of those lives are characterized as I engage them by anxious toil. Anxious toil. Always busy. Always got to keep up with the rat race. Always got lots of things to do. Always got to keep on top of things so they can pay the mortgage. Anxious toil. Rise up early, go to bed late. Anxious toil. And yet verse 2b illustrates for us what should characterize the experience of the Christian. For he gives to his beloved sleep. And sleep then should be a distinct characterization and experience of the beloved, namely Christians. You and I. Now, lest I be misunderstood, Christians should work hard. They should. I thought as Mark did just an outstanding job last week talking to us about really the theology of work and how it works. It's very important that as Christians we understand that we should work really hard. God has called us by his amazing grace to represent him. We are called as mankind to reflect him in his work, and we are called then by the Lord and commissioned by the Lord to be his ambassadors in our workplaces, and ultimately we work for him. You don't have to be a pastor to work for God. We all work for God. Every single individual in the room that operates any type of work, if you are a single, if you are a mum, you are working. Believe me, if you're a mum, you're probably working harder than me. Okay, you work very, very hard because your work goes on holiday with you as well. My work doesn't. You work very, very hard. Work is something we're called by God to do. We are commissioned by God to do. And all work is ultimately for the Lord. And it goes to the Lord. And ultimately one day will be judged by the world, by the Lord. Christians should work hard. But there should be a difference in our toil. There should be a difference in our work. As Christians, our motive in toil should be quite different. Because our identity should not be bound up in our work. Our worth should not be found in our workplace. Our worth and our identity needs to be found in Christ and Him glorified. The fact that we're saved and adopted and redeemed and that heaven is our home. The Bible says that we're aliens and strangers in this place. And yet we like to think, no, this is our home and I'm going to work my way up. Do not be fooled or deceived by the world's ways in those things. Our motive for work needs to be quite different from the world. So yes, our work is to the Lord, but our motive for it is different because our identity is not bound up in it. As Christians, the nature of our toil should be different. We should be exhibiting in our lives a dependency upon the Lord in work and an understanding that there are limitations on our work. Verse 1 again, unless the Lord builds the house, i.e., unless... The Lord helps you with your work. Those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, i.e., unless the Lord watches over your work, the watchman stays awake in vain. You are, that should be a moment of depression for all that works. You are limited. Very limited. That's not something that your manager will ever tell you. But it's something God says to you right off the bat. Your identity is not in work. And you are limited in work. Because unless I step in and help you, you're just going to labor in vain. It's not going to work out. 
And when a Christian understands that, the effect then of that toil having on an individual should be different. And the difference should be this. The Christian should go through their work life and not be anxious. Because they're aware, my identity isn't bound up in this work. And so if I'm not cut out for it or I can't do it, that's okay. I'll go do something else for the glory of the Lord. And I don't mind if I get 15 promotions or I don't do any. I'm just amazed by grace that I'm a Christian and I want to give my life to serve Jesus in crazy love. And you know what? I'm aware that even though I'm working hard, unless the Lord helps me with these things and establishes the work of my hands, I'm limited to what I can do. So I'm going to work really hard, but ultimately my trust is in God and not my own strength. And so a Christian then, by the grace of God, rises in the morning, works hard throughout the day unto the Lord, returns home in the night, tired because they've worked hard in the day, and then in the night they enjoy the gift of sleep. Not anxious, but the gift of sleep. And sleep, when you stop and think about it, as a gift, is is incredible. I mean, time doesn't permit me to go through all the ins and outs of how incredible sleep is. But just to mention a couple of them, I mean, just check this out. Through sleep... Our minds are restored daily. Have you ever thought about that? What a gift that is. You close your eyes and go to sleep and your mind is in effect rebooted. And then you wake up in the morning to new mercies. That is an incredible gift of grace on our lives. And I'm made aware of that gift most weeks. Seriously. Thursday nights, here's what happens most weeks. I give myself on a Thursday and a Friday and then sometimes early Saturday as well to, to prepare this message and to prepare messages on a weekly basis. On a Thursday night though, here's what happens. Having worked hard on the message most of Thursday, at some point in the night in fatigued state, I, I reappear in my office. Sometimes after Emma's gone to bed, I reappear. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm just checking to make sure, is it there? And, and I discover it's there, but upon quick reading, I realize... This is rubbish. I have nothing to say. I, this is going to be the world's worst sermon. This message is going to stink. That, that's what I feel about in that moment. I think, I'm not even sure this is true. And so all the research I've done, and I've read endless books, and then I think, okay, I've read endless books. I've clearly made notes on all the wrong material. Um, what can I remember from all of the books I've read today? And there's nothing. There's absolutely nothing going on in my brain. And so they are weekly moments where I am often overwhelmed with, oh my gosh, Lord, what, what am I going to do? Here's what I've learned about myself and over the last, last 12 years of having the privilege of being a pastor. I, I've learned that in those moments I need to trust myself upon the Lord and secondarily I need to go to bed and enjoy the gift of sleep. Because when I go to bed, and I enjoy the gift of sleep. I come downstairs on a Friday morning and I walk into my office and I look at the same notes and I think, you know, that ain't bad. We, we got some good stuff here. We're going to be all right. And you think, same notes, different mind, same message, same material, different headspace. What a gift then. What a gift. What a kindness of the Lord, knowing our daily fatigue to say, you know what? I'm going to give you the gift of sleep. And while you're asleep, I'm going to restore your mind. And you're going to start the next day and you're going to see new things, new mercies, new graces. Same material, son. But you'll be looking at it differently. He restores our minds. Through sleep, our minds are restored. And through sleep, listen, our strength is restored. How incredible is that as well? I mean, I'm not a doctor. I have watched a lot of House in my time, so I think I have a few abilities. But apart from that, I really know nothing about the medical profession whatsoever. But what I have from what I've read, during sleep, our bodies, in effect, repair themselves. As our eyes close and we go into sleep, our bodies begin the work of repairing themselves. The immune system is strengthened. Our bodies are strengthened. Our bodies are repaired. Sleep is a gift from God a daily gift from God. And it's a gift that his gracious work has provided for us with wild generosity. Isn't that amazing? Every day, the end of the day, I have a gift for you. I have a gift for my beloved. What is it? Oh, sleep. 
this will help you. This will aid you. This will bless you in your lives. Now, so that I not be misunderstood, one qualifying statement, particularly aimed at all those in their teenage years in the building. Sleep is a gift, but sleep should not be abused. All gifts can be abused, and we think it is for the glory of God, but we are deceived. We're actually just enjoying the gift more than the giver. And so Proverbs 20, verse 13, the Lord says, Love not sleep, lest you come to poverty. Proverbs 26, verse 15 says, As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. And so what I don't want you to do is go home and appeal to mum and dad over lunch that, you know what, you are so wrong about my lying in stuff. Because I am sleeping 16 hours a day for the glory of God. It is a gift that I want to just, I just want to participate in for the glory of God. So mum and dad, thank you for pointing out that my sleep is rather excessive every day, but Dave says it's for Jesus. Don't, don't do that, okay? Do not guard your heart against those things. Sleep is a gift like food is a gift, like media is a gift, but none of them is meant to be taken to the extreme. Our object of our attention must be the giver. And so that is the one qualifying statement. I feel like I've done it, so let's move on. Sleep is a gift from God. Number two, sleep is a daily reminder from God. A daily reminder from God. Turn to Psalm 121, please. Sleep is a daily reminder, a daily gift, and a daily reminder. Well, a reminder of what? Well, here's what. I submit to you that sleep is a daily reminder of our utter dependence upon God. Each and every day of your lives, sleep is a moment where you are to realize and I am to realize my utter dependence upon the Lord. See, think about it. God could have created you without the need to sleep at all. He doesn't sleep. He didn't need you to sleep. God could have chose you not to need sleep in any shape or form at any point in your life. But instead, he chose to give you sleep as a gift for a purpose. And I submit to you that purpose is so that at a daily event, a daily moment in time, you will realize in abounding grace your utter dependence upon him. A daily reminder that you are a creature. A daily reminder that you are not the creator. And although you may have spent some of the day thinking you probably are, when you are decrepit in bed at the end of the day and just can't hang on a moment longer, you realize you ain't no creator. You're just a creature. And it is a daily reminder then of our utter dependence upon the Lord. And this is the tone of Psalm 121. It's the tone of this psalm that also illustrates who we are before the Lord. It's a song of a sense, a wonderful song that the Jews would sing as they go up towards Jerusalem for the annual feast. the, the, The route would be a very difficult one. They would be always on the risk of getting robbed or getting killed by wild animals or just falling over and breaking their leg and they can't exactly get airlifted out. There were numerous things that could have taken place to the Jews on their way to Jerusalem. So they would sing this. Listen to the effect it had on their souls. They sang as follows. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. In this psalm, they they sing about how pathetic, in a sense, they are. Who's going to keep me? Where did my help come from? Because I've had it out here. Oh, I remember. The maker of heaven and earth. The creator king of all. The one who spins the galaxies and created the very mountains of Judah to which we now walk. I know the one. 
The one who neither slumbers nor sleeps. The one who is a shade at my right hand by day and a shade at my right hand by night. The one who is in all things my keeper. The one who will engage with my life and ensure that even as I tread on my way, he will not let my foot slip. He's the one. I'm just a creature. But he's the creator. And he's my God. And so I trust him. So it is with sleep. A daily reminder before the Lord that I'm just a creature. But you're the creator. I'm just created. But you neither slumber nor sleep. You are the one who spins the galaxies. You are the one who sent your son to die in my place. You are the one that watches over my coming and going, both for now and forevermore. And so, Lord, daily, I trust my life to your hands again as I sleep. I need sleep but you never sleep you're the maker of heaven and earth sleep is a daily reminder from God of our utter dependence upon him and you know when you think about it you realize that this point is intrinsically linked I think to so many reasons as to for so many of us as to why on some occasions we can't sleep because as I've engaged with my own life and as I've engaged with many of your lives, the reality is on many occasions, and differing occasions, for some of us, sleep is hard, right? Getting to sleep and then remaining asleep can be difficult. Well, I don't have time and I don't have the experience or the wisdom to know all of the plethora of reasons as to why people can't sleep. But as I review my own life, here's what I've found. Um, sometimes I can't sleep because I'm just too excited and I'm like a four-year-old kid sometimes if something exciting happens. So just this week on Thursday, we had some wonderful and unexpected news in that, as many of you know, we've been waiting for our permanent residency for six months. And if we didn't get it, which I didn't tell you all about because I don't want to worry about you, uh, but if we didn't get it, we would be asked to leave the country within 28 days. And that makes this church tricky. So we didn't have too much of a plan B. Um, but, but on Thursday... I encountered an email that was saying, of the two parts of our permanent residency, the first has been immediately passed. So I was just like, that, that's amazing, because before, when we were trying to get in the country, that took a year. That took a year because they were trying to refuse me twice on the grounds that we didn't have a place of residency, we didn't have a place of worship, you wouldn't have enough to do. It was a nightmare. So I was always aware this could be tricky to get the church passed as a nominee. And then we get an email saying, hey, you passed, congratulations. And you think, oh, Oh, that is good news. So God willing, within two weeks, we should have our permanent residency. And that was just wonderful news and the provision of the Lord for us, which means we can be here by God's grace for the rest of our lives. I was excited about that. And so I couldn't get to sleep. I was like a cat on a hot tin roof. I go to bed and I'm just telling Emma, I've told you that we got a permanent residency. It's like, yeah, you've told me about 10 times. And, oh, just, just wanted you to know. And, and I realized that, you know, I'm thanking God. I'm praying. I'm thinking I've listened to some music, praying. I'm trying to do star jumps. And you just realize that sleeping is going to be tricky tonight because I'm excited. Lollies have the same effect on my life, I've discovered. If I, if I eat lollies too late in the day, sleep can be tricky. And and my, my, my favorite water of life is Coke. Um, I like Coke. But again, it's not advisable to drink that after midnight. That's what I've discovered in my short life because it just, it just doesn't help with the sleeping process. A few weeks ago, likewise, ourselves, like many of you, couldn't sleep because of the excessive heat. It was boiling. We had the aircon on and it was boiling. I mean, it was just unbearable. And because we're British, we can't give up the quilt yet because we like the little... <laughs> We like the feeling of it pressing down on us. <laughs> and that will probably always remain in our, in our palm nature. Um, so I'm boiling, but I can't take it off because then I just feel exposed. So I, so I keep it on. I keep it on, but, but then I can't sleep. So then you try the one leg out and one leg in, and, and nothing really works. So you're just, you're just awake for ages. And so too many lollies, excessive heat, excitement, they result in my life in and often an inability to sleep in that moment. But here's the thing. is, If I'm honest, 99% of the time when I can't sleep, it's not one of those things. 99% of the time when I can't sleep, it's usually because I've inadequately seized the daily reminder of utter dependence that sleep is. 
And so I'm lying in bed anxious about numerous things. Because in that moment, I have replaced God on the throne of my life with myself. And I sit there unable to sleep because I just feel like I've got so many things to do. So many responsibilities, so many decisions that I need to make. And instead of then entrusting my life to the Creator, I replace the Creator with my own life and I think I'll worry about it instead of Him. How futile is that? And I submit to you that if we're honest, maybe that's the reason why many of you can't sleep as well. You're carrying things that only God can carry. And when he says to cast our burdens onto him, we do for three seconds. And then we take them all back again and think about them for the rest of the night. You know, I thank God then for the example of King David. Turn with me to look over at Psalm 3. Because what a sweet psalm this is. And what an example King David is to us in this challenge, if this is an issue for us. Psalm 3 is a psalm of David, and it was written by David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And as David is fleeing, he writes as follows. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. David, by the grace of God, is very aware that there are literally thousands pursuing him to kill him. There is a price on his head. And as David sits before the Lord in this moment, he is aware But you, O Lord, you are my shield. You are my keeper. You are the watchman watching over my life. Look then at what he does. Verse 5. So I lay down and slept. I woke up again. For the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Isn't that wonderful? David has been betrayed by his son. There is now a contract on his head and literally many thousands are pursuing David to kill David. And yet David, as he reflects upon the Lord and how great the shield of the Lord is, in verse 5, he lays down and sleeps. How? How did he do that? Here's how he did that. He talks about it all the way through the psalm, and he talks about it all through numerous psalms. The reason why he lay down and slept is because in this moment, David had great confidence in the one he knew was holding him. He knew that although thousands pursue me to kill me, Lord, I can trust you. You are the creator of all. You are the one that neither slumbers nor sleeps. You are the one that hems me in both behind and before. You are the God of all things, the perfecter of my faith, the one that holds my head. And so, Lord, I trust you. And so, Lord, if you don't mind, I'm going to put myself to sleep because you're in control and I don't need to be. There is something so vulnerable about sleep, is there not? Because you can't do anything. And yet David didn't mind about that. Because he knew God was doing everything in the midst of his sleep. He was holding him and keeping him. That God was indeed his shield. And so he laid down and slept. Because he knew who was keeping him. You know, few of us, I think, if any of us, can relate to this level of opposition, correct? Not aware, as I've reviewed your membership forms, that any of you have been chased by thousands of people who are trying to kill you. I'm not aware of that, unless it was just an omission that I didn't come across. But in reality, I think it only takes one enemy on occasions to keep us up. Somebody who we're finding difficult, somebody who we think in reality appears to be wrecking our lives, or maybe not a person, maybe a decision, A decision which in this moment has become an enemy for us because we just can't get it out of our mind and we just can't decide. 
And so it comes to bed with us as we're thinking it through over and over again. What am I to do? Or the enemy of a situation, something that we know is looming in our lives and we just don't know how we're going to be able to cope. So as we lie in our bed, the enemy of that situation begins to bombard our thought life. It only really takes one enemy. Folks, when this happens then, listen, this is my encouragement to you. I think it's the example of David. When this happens, when sleep becomes a problem for you or staying asleep becomes a problem for you, when this happens... Seize then daily the reminder that sleep is of your utter dependence upon God. In that moment when you are tempted towards anxiety, be aware that this very moment prior to sleep is a gift from God to remind you He's in control and you are not. Don't be anxious. He holds you. So as David does, Lay down then and sleep because God's in control. He's your keeper. He's your sustainer. And where sleep is difficult, remind yourselves then of who it is that you can lift your head to, the maker of heaven and earth. Sleep is a daily gift from God. Sleep is a daily reminder from God. And finally, in closing, sleep is a daily moment, a daily moment of heart examination before God. Sleep is a daily moment of heart examination before God. Look with me over at verse 4 of chapter 4. Psalm 4. It's another psalm of David, and so no doubt he's once again drawing from his own personal experiences of being chased. Doesn't sound very pleasant. And in verse 4 then, he writes as follows. He says, Be angry and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. For those of you that are around when we did Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26, you'll be aware that we looked at anger then. And we saw in God's grace that anger in and of itself is not necessarily a sin. There is something called righteous anger that can be utilized at an appropriate time, and it is okay to be righteously angry. So Jesus, for example, with the Pharisees, is righteously angry with them on occasions due to their hardness of heart. Jesus, as he goes into the temple, is righteously angry with them. A zeal for the Lord's house consumes him, and he realizes that they've made somewhere so special into a den of robbers. And so he begins to cast them out and create whips and whip them out. It was righteous anger that was taking place within there. And when we encounter serious rank and righteousness and injustice, it is okay to be angry. If you discover tomorrow that your next-door neighbor has been raped and taken away, it is okay to be righteously angry to what has taken place to her. We should be, because this is appalling before the Lord. And we represent the Lord as his ambassadors, so it is appropriate to realize this is wrong. We need to do all we can. We need to do all we can, for example, to ensure that Lance Armstrong has created more attention than the millions and millions of young women who are sold into sex slavery. He gets more attention. They get little. We should be righteously angry about that and be aware our attention must go to them. Because around the world, small children are being sold from their parents into slavery and sex. We should not, as Christians, just go, oh, We should pray for them. No, we should be righteously angry for them and then lambast ourselves at the recovery process of ensuring that this becomes to an end. We should be righteously angry and it's appropriate to be righteously angry about such things. But here's the truth. I think it is rare that we're angry about those things. I think it is common that we're angry about other things. I think it is rare that we're angry about righteous things. I think often we're angry about things because they involve me. That's my story. I'm angry because I've been spoken to in a way that I don't think I deserve to be spoken to. I'm angry because I didn't get what I wanted to get. Because where is the clicker for the TV? That's what I'm angry about. 
Not the selling of children into sex slavery, but where the clicker is for the TV. I get angry because I haven't been treated in a way that I think I should be or overwhelmed by different things. And, and you get angry as people are pressing those different buttons. But verse 4, it's important to realize as we try and understand it, it's not talking here about righteous anger. In verse 4, it's talking here about be angry. If you notice, you've got an ESV Bible, there's a little number, and it says at the bottom, it says, or be agitated. That's a very important note, because what it's talking about here is not primarily the action of anger. It's talking about be agitated. When you are tempted towards anger, do not sin. When you are agitated, do not sin. And it is when you understand that, that I think this whole verse comes alive. So let me, let me illustrate through my own life. There, is, there are numerous times in my day, given the busyness of my day, that I am preoccupied. I am, I am preoccupied with responsibilities and decisions throughout my day. And you don't need to feel sorry for me. I love to be preoccupied with decisions and things that need to take place in my day. And so throughout my day, and then when I'm at home with my wife and my children, I'm preoccupied with, with busyness and decisions and things that need to take place in our lives for the glory of the Lord. I'm preoccupied with that. And given the speed of my life, I often find it impossible, really impossible to carefully and consistently and accurately discern the motives, intents, and attitudes of my heart throughout the day. I can't. It is so busy as we get on with the day that I can't go into every interaction thinking, oh, I wonder why I just said that. Do you think I spoke a little bit? We're not going to have the time to do that with every interaction, every decision, every moment throughout the day because days are busy, right? And for those of you with young children, you'll realize that's true all day. It just goes, just goes on. And just when you think you're getting hold of it, they wake up in the night and, and it happens again. There is just, you aren't bombarded by moments of busyness where you cannot have time and you don't have the energy just to constantly look inward and work out, why did I say that? Why did I do that? What, what is happening here? And so in my life, given the busyness of my life, given my daily preoccupation with so many things, and given the fact that I am a sinner and live in a fallen world, given the fact that indwelling sin is in my life and it's in your life, which gives me job security, given all those facts, given all those facts, there are moments in my day when I'm agitated. I am. I'm overwhelmed with decisions need to be made. And you think, why, why was that decision not made earlier? And you can feel yourself being agitated. Well, praise God for David's example and Dave's pastoral care in verse 4. Because read then in context, which I hope has now been brought to life to you, it really reads as follows. Be agitated. Sovereign grace. People of sovereign grace, you will be tempted towards anger. And it will probably be a daily occurrence. There will be moments in your life, given your indwelling sin, that you will be agitated by something somebody else is doing. It may be the TV clicker. It may be something more serious. But there will be a moment in your day, minimally one, if not, if not many every hour, where you will be tempted to sin. This is David's instruction. Be agitated and do not sin. Do not. Because if you follow through on this, you will sin. Being agitated is not a sin. It's now what you do with it. So be agitated and do not sin. Well, David, how can I do that? Because I'm a human guy. I have indwelling sin in my heart. Oh, here's how. Be agitated and do not sin. Here's how. By pondering in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Well, if your life is like mine, I can't do that every five minutes throughout my day. I cannot run to my bed. Can I have Andrew Lung halfway through a major decision at NAB Bank, then going, feel a bit agitated, running to my bed. That's not going to work. That's not what David is talking about here. David, I believe, is saying, you know what, be agitated because it's going to happen to you. But don't sin. By pondering in your own hearts, in your beds, and be silent. Here's what I think he's talking about. He's saying, you know what? Those moments before your eyes finally close in sleep, 
For some, that's 20 seconds. You better do quick. <laughs> For others of us, it's, it's, it's longer. And I think most of the time when we're agitated, it's longer. So in those moments prior to sleep, ponder. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. As the busyness of life stops, take a moment prior to sleep to stop and realize, Lord, where do you need me to change in my heart? Lord, what am I seeing that, what am I not seeing that you want to teach me? Lord, how can I be agitated with that individual when you died in my place? Lord, how can I be self-righteous towards that individual when you died for me when I was your enemy and you love me now unconditionally? Lord, how can I be angry at them? Each and every day, take a moment to ponder. And so I want to encourage you, make then your final moments before the gift of sleep takes place with bringing joy to your heart at Calvary. Because when you fall asleep at Calvary, everything looks very different in the morning. Because you realize there are mercies in you. And the things that agitated me yesterday, why am I bothered? Let's go again. And Lord, you are good. My friend, sleep, I trust now you realize, is far from ordinary. It's extraordinary. It's truly incredible. It is a daily gift from God It is a daily reminder from God and it is a daily moment of heart examination before God. So we're not going to close today by singing a song. Here's what we're going to do. When you go home to bed tonight and then tomorrow night and the night after, I want to encourage you, by God's grace, would you see that moment with new eyes and would it genuinely then be worshipped to you as you realise It's a gift. It's a reminder. And God is good. Let's pray. Well, Lord, although we cannot enjoy this gift right now, Lord, I pray that for each member of this church, when we do get to later, that we would enjoy it for your glory. Lord, help us to see in your sovereignty just how precious and wonderful you really are. Oh Lord, I thank you that you are involved even in the mundane in our lives, even in the small things, because they matter to you. And your gracious presence and provision pervades throughout. In Jesus' precious name, amen.